Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be the land of the First Nations people. This is the first of a three-part series that is focused on the Catholic Education Archdiocese of Canberra, Goulburn. Across the three episodes, I will delve into how they have changed their approach to teaching and learning across the system. When I first heard about this thing that they were calling Catalyst, I was intrigued. It was being promoted as a whole system of 56 schools that were focused on evidence-based pedagogy, curriculum and assessment. Being the edgy nerd that I am, I checked out its website and was blown away when I saw the resources that were being promoted. It included Rosenstein's Principles of Instruction, the Dean's for Impact Science of Learning Summary, New South Wales CC's Cognitive Load Theory document and presentations from people like Tom Sherrington, E.D. Hirsch Jr., Dr. Lorraine Hammond, Professor Pamela Snow, and Natalie Wexler. A seriously impressive lineup. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that sounds great, but anyone can upload a bunch of documents and videos onto a website. What's so special about Catalyst? Well, hopefully the next few episodes will answer that question. Today, you will hear about the vision from Director Ross Fox. On the next episode, education lead Patrick Ellis will go through the implementation process and finally you'll hear from staff at St Bernard's in Batemans Bay about what is actually being transferred into the classrooms. Today's guest, Ross Box, is the Director of the Catholic Education Archdiocese of Canberra Goulburn. He is a visionary behind Catalyst and you will hear about his journey. He will also discuss the process that he and his team have gone through in implementing Catalyst across 56 schools. So, here is my conversation with Ross Fox. Really excited to be speaking to Ross Fox, who is the Director of Catholic Education, Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Before we dig into the Catalyst story, Ross, are you able to tell us a bit about your journey into the position that you are in today? Sure, Brendan. It's a real pleasure and delight to be with you today. I've got a bit of an unusual journey into my current role in educational leadership. I grew up in country Victoria. I went to university and my first degree was in engineering. Out of university, I worked in business and strategy advice um, for a number of years. Worked in remote indigenous communities in Western Australia for a stint, amongst other things. Uh, I then did a second degree in philosophy, politics and economics. And then I, my mother was a teacher. I always had an interest in education and ended up working in the Catholic Education Office in Melbourne. And that began now a, a, a about a 15 year journey working in educational leadership in Catholic education. And I've been in my current role as director of Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra, Goulburn, coming on seven years. We're an interesting system. We operate across both the ACT and New South Wales with a total of 56 schools. So it's, it's quite a diverse and challenging role. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and you're another person who I can add to my long list of 
of people involved in education who come from families of educators. And yeah, really interesting how many people I've spoken to that have that same story. What, what sort of things have you taken away from your experience in the business world into education? That's a great question, Brendan. Really, there's a challenge in education in that the results that we deliver aren't necessarily immediately obvious to us. In business, simplistically, you know, it is about the profit generated, the money, the surplus. Education, it's more complicated than that. So there's some things we can learn from business. Really, education is all about people and business ultimately is about relationships, people. I guess in recent decades, there's been an expanded view of what business is about. It's not just about profit. It's just not about finances. It's actually about the community, the environment, the people. And so there's many things we can learn about how to achieve change, how to set out a vision and how to pursue it. Because ultimately, I think in education, whatever sector we're from, whatever our role in school or at a system level, whatever jurisdiction, we share a really common aspiration for great outcomes for our students and ultimately equity. So I think there's many things we can learn from business, but we have to be very careful that how we apply them in an educational and school setting. Yeah, really interesting reflections there because I think some of the disconnects that teachers can feel from, you know, the government and you know, that the people in, in the offices in, in your, in the, in the shiny suits and that disconnect can be from those people generally have a business background and they are kind of looking for, for the numbers, you know, looking for how we can kind of measure growth. But like you, you touched on there, you know, teaching takes place in time, but learning takes place over time. And so it can be really difficult if we're just going to be looking at numbers to actually be measuring what is effective and what is not, because sometimes we not be, we not, might not be seeing the results for a couple of years down the track after something has actually been implemented. But we know that a lot of our funding and a lot of the decisions that are being made are based on numbers of the here and the now. So uh, yeah, I like how you've made that reflection. And I think it's a, an important thing for people to think about when we are kind of looking at data. What inspired you to take on the challenge of leading change across a whole school, a whole system of schools, and how did you go about developing a vision for this change? When I arrived as director of Catholic education, I really wanted to get to know the 56 schools and their communities. I talked to a lot of teachers, spoke with a lot of parents, spent time in classrooms, talking to students. What was evident to me was that we're incredibly fortunate to have such dedicated educators, such dedicated educational leaders, but we were not getting the return to the effort that was being put in. Our system encompasses the ACT, which does have pockets of disadvantage. It, it's a very diverse community. Uh, it has the most advantaged and some of the most disadvantaged people in Australia. But really, as a jurisdiction, the ACT uh, should be showing educational leadership in terms of outcomes and attainment, what we're able to achieve. We've got an incredibly over, generally and overwhelmingly, a, a very advantaged community. 
So we should be really well placed to achieve very high outcomes. And and our system does have some, have some very remote schools in New South Wales, some very small schools. So we have a great diversity. But what was obvious from my experience was that there was a real high aspiration, but we weren't achieving it. And it wasn't through a lack of effort. So that set off for me a really deep reflection about what was important, what we were trying to do. And uh, we cast our net really widely. We tried to learn from schools outside our own system, Sydney, Perth, Melbourne, other places, to see what they were doing, how it was informing their teaching and learning approach and the results they were seeing from that effort. And so really it was a recognition that we weren't achieving what was possible. We weren't achieving what we could. So I can describe for you, Brendan, the the process of reflection and discernment that kicked off for me. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Yeah. So, so really there was a recognition that although there was a lot of wisdom in our system, we didn't have enough high achievement to say confidently, if we just copy this, if we just learn from uh, within that we'll achieve what we want. So we, we did set about carefully curating visits and experiences to other schools, other school systems, other educational leaders to learn from everyone as to what, what we could do in our own context that would make the most difference for learning and teaching. So that went on for a couple of years reflecting on what were the concepts informing teaching and learning, informing pedagogy, curriculum, assessment that we should privilege and prioritize. And in the course of that, we had to discard, discard some very deeply held beliefs about what, how students learn, how our teaching helps students to learn. So really that's when we came upon, you know, a couple of important concepts, the science of learning and the science of reading. And I might just unpack those briefly that Really, you know, the science of learning can be described as many things, but fundamentally it's about acknowledging that there is a way in which most brains learn. And that's how students actually learn that overwhelmingly students do learn in a similar way, not in an identical way, but in a similar way. And that counter to uh, many beliefs in education that we shouldn't start with a premise that every student's different, therefore every student needs to learn differently. Therefore the teacher needs to provide a different learning experience for every student. So there was a recognition that actually cognitive science, the best um, cognitive science, the best cognitive psychology acknowledges that something approaching 90-95% of students do learn the same way and can respond to great learning and teaching in a whole class environment. And then there was the science reading that said really at its essence that I think there's a lot to be said about the simple view of reading, that reading is the result of being able to decode and a knowledge of vocabulary. That's vastly simplifying the process of learning to read. But acknowledging that means you acknowledge that there is a role for the teacher to help the student to understand grapheme phoneme correspondences to not only learn the alphabet, but to learn the sounds that make up words in English. And so that they can, through decoding, through their vocabulary, uh, move from learning to read to reading to learn and start their learning journey, supported by great teaching in a profound way. 
Ross, what stands out to me is just how knowledgeable you are on the actual process of learning. And I think it's really important for someone in your position, you know, as a, a director of you know, such a, a large system, you're able to make informed decisions, you know, so when you are looking at, you know, curriculum resources, you know, where we, where we kind of put these things and, and allocate our time, if you've got a, a strong understanding of how learning happens and, and, you know, how students learn to read, it allows you to then make these informed decisions, which you're able to kind of stand by where I, I, what we see a lot in education is a lot of chopping and changing. And, and that can come about because either leaders haven't fully thought through, you know, the impact of the decisions that they make, or they haven't been able to make those informed decisions. And, you know, you, you've spoken about how you took two years just to, you know, really solidify what, what sort of changes that you wanted to make. And I, and I think that's also an important message is that we can get really caught up in wanting to make these big changes now, you know, and, and especially when we first come across what the research is telling us and, and you can feel a little bit guilty, you know, for not having followed this process before. And so you, you kind of rush to things, but I'm sure you were purposeful in taking um, your time with it and, and really making sure you understood what was happening before you started you know, implementing things. Is that, am I right in saying that? A, a few reflections on that. There were some really uncomfortable times for me as leader where working with my colleagues, my principal colleagues and principals really asking, oh, when are we going to roll out the new program, the new initiative? And my response was, we're not going to roll anything out new until we're really sure it's the right thing to do. So I had to keep pausing because in a, our system isn't huge, but it's 56 schools. It's a thousand classrooms. My, one of my anxieties as the leader is that an action sort of at a system level can have very unintended consequences as it propagates in the schools and classrooms. And so I was very wary that any action actually had a positive effect, assisted teachers, assisted students, rather than it could just as easily. And many of the interventions at system levels across Australia can have a negative consequence. So I wanted to make sure we were going to do something positive. So we, we did wait. And just a, I guess one example of how fundamental some of the change has been. So for various reasons, when I commenced as director, we were a system predominantly describing our pedagogical approach and commitment as being to inquiry learning. And I would say we didn't have a very precise definition of that, that when we reflected on it, when we sort of examined our beliefs about that, there wasn't a clear and precise definition of what that meant and why that was the right thing to do from how we understood learning happened for students. Yeah. And so, so the biggest provocation was, I recall being at a meeting, uh, we'd just been and visited half a dozen schools and I just asked a question of my colleagues, my senior colleagues in the system, what role should explicit instruction have in our approach to learning? And there was huge disquiet, almost uproar in the room. Because we were asking a question that fundamentally went against the dominant belief in the system. Now, that was at the time I was really shocked and surprised, but we have to be open as educators to following the logic, the evidence, the science and saying, well, we've got to be open to what might be the interests of students and learning and really 
I couldn't understand how we couldn't have an account of the role of explicit instruction, actually telling students what they, what we wanted them to know, being very explicit about it as part of learning. And so I'm proud to say now that we do as a system, I believe, have a very clear account of the role of explicit instruction. And that's not the whole story, but I think it's an important part of uh, the science of learning, understand how people learn, understand what efficient, effective teaching is, uh, to have an account of explicit instruction. So that's one example, I guess, where we've gone from a system where explicit instruction was almost a dirty word to having schools realize the profound impact we can have on students' learning and on their lives through the simple idea that if a teacher wants a student to know something, they should start by telling them what they want want them to know very clearly. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard you speak before and, and you mentioned how when you first uh, listened to Ollie Lovell's podcast with uh, Lorraine Hammond and how transformative that was in your own thinking. Um, was this, this kind of happened during this same time period? Yeah, it did. And, and look, there is a, uh, a podcast that Lorraine Hammond did with Ollie and what I got out of it, the podcast is actually about instructional coaching and it is, it's a, coaching is a very popular idea in education and it is often a coaching model that says, I'm a coach, I'm going to help you get better at what you want to get better at. And I remember very vividly driving along, listening to this podcast and Lorraine Hammond said, her view of coaching is I'm really good at what I do. I'm here to help you be as good as me. So I'm going to coach you to be like me. And just that, what is in, uh, ingrained in that idea is a profound belief that there is actually a way to teach that is effective for most students in most contexts, and that we can define that as professional educational leaders and professional educators. And I, I guess I'd really struggled with this massive diversity of beliefs and opinions about how we should go about teaching and, you know, Dylan William, who I know that you're intimately familiar with, but he talks about the classroom being treated as a black box. And I think in many educational ideas and interventions, we do treat the classroom as a black box where what Lorraine Hammond, I take her to be saying is the classroom isn't a black box. We know what the teacher should be doing to best support the learning of all students. And so that was quite a profound philosophical step to say, this isn't just about helping teachers get better. It's about saying we together can define a precise conception of pedagogy curriculum assessment that will be effective in most circumstances. And we should then pursue it. And we should coach people to be really good at working within that concept or paradigm or understanding rather than starting with the presumption that in the thousand classrooms, everyone's going to choose what they might want to get better at and how they, how we can support them to get better. And one, one model obviously is the equivalent of a thousand flowers blooming compared to, we have a professional understanding that's very clear about how we can help students to learn effectively. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a good segue into looking at catalyst now. So, you know, you've had, you've had a couple of years where you're, you're looking at what's actually happening at schools. Uh, you're looking at the research, you're talking to different people. So how did the idea for Catalyst come about and what is actually involved in it? Yeah. So there's probably three concepts that I'd attempt to unpack. So we, 
you know, this, this predates the word catalyst or the brand catalyst. We're really looking around saying, well, if we want to make the most difference to the learning of students, where do we start? Now it sounds like an abstract, simple question. Maybe there's a simple answer. We didn't know it at the time, but where we came to was saying our learning and teaching initiative now known as catalyst is unashamedly based on the belief that the teacher is the most important learner. Now we know in education, there's always competition for putting the child at the center, um, the student at the center, but unless we support our teachers in very effective ways to be effective, we're asking them to be sort of superheroes or courageous to solve problems that they're not well-placed to solve if they don't have the right school and system support. So we really put that as the foremost principle in our aspiration to improve our educational outcomes, that it was going to be done by recognizing that the teacher is the most important learner. Then there's, I'd say there's two steps from there. There was also after a lot of reflection, uh, a real question for us is to why, or uh, really an aspiration that we were going to have or be able to share a precise model of teaching curriculum and assessment, pedagogy, curriculum, assessment, what we, how we teach, what we teach and how we know the students have learned it, that we should have as precise a conception of that as possible. And that would ultimately be a benefit to our teachers because the expectation would be clear. It would be a benefit to our students because they would experience a consistent learning environment and it would be better for the system because we're able to support it reliably. So we wanted a precise conception of pedagogy curriculum assessment. And then the, the third concept, which grew out of recognizing the teacher was the most important learner and a precise pedagogical uh, approach, precise curriculum approach and a precise assessment approach was a professional learning model. And we'd been doing as a system and schools, professional learning for a long time. And really we think we thought it hadn't seen the results we wanted and that we came to the belief that the model of professional learning we needed had four essential components. They were that there was a theory component that we all needed to know and understand a certain set of theory. Then when it came to what we were actually trying to change was what's happening in the classroom. And so that needed a demonstration component. We needed to see good practice for ourselves. And then following the demonstration, we needed an opportunity to apply that practice, to actually practice the practice, if you like. And then the fourth step was teachers getting feedback and coaching based on the, the defined practice and how that applied it so that they could reflect themselves and then improve. So the four essential elements that we believe were necessary to see benefits to professional learning was theory, demonstration, practice, and coaching and feedback. So a significant part of Catalyst alongside initiatives that provide lesson materials, that provide some curriculum materials, that provide pedagogical expectations is a coaching model. A professional learning model has those four elements together because we believe that only with those four working together do you get the sort of reinforcement that's necessary to achieve something quite difficult, which is change in practice in the classroom for the benefit of students. So they're really the three 
big ideas and I could go further. And, and they're based, by the way, all that's based on a very close interrogation of the evidence, the science of learning, the science of reading, Rosenshine principles of instruction, a num- number of other important references uh, that built up to inform the activity in each of those, those initiatives and beliefs. Yeah. So I guess just kind of digging into some of those, those key aspects, when you're looking at like, you know, what we teach, how we teach and how we know that the students have learned it, what sorts of things have you included there? So really how we teach, there's two or three uh, things that I just point out that are now quite different. So people have been into our classrooms within the last two or three years and said that they, they didn't regularly see uh, it being evident that the teacher was teaching the students. There was lots of activity going on, but teachers being in front of the class teaching students wasn't regularly evident. In recent times, that's much more evident. So we're doing things like regularly using a daily review, a five to 10 minute segment that's recounting knowledge that the students have learned in the last, say, week, month or term to give them a chance to experience that space retrieval to re-encounter that and hopefully help them commit that that knowledge to long-term memory. So the daily review is definitely a focus. The explicit teaching idea, so that is powerful, that if we want a student to know something, the best way for them to learn it as a novice learner is for them to be told, not to discover it for themselves. And that that's actually incredibly hard to do well, to break ideas processes skills down into their smallest constituent parts and introduce them to students and give them a, an opportunity to master that knowledge, that skill. And then the other powerful idea, I believe, is the check for understanding. So it's best or very frequently done now in our system with whiteboards in the hands of students. So a teacher can teach something over the course of, say, 30 seconds, ask a question of the whole class, and then see within five seconds a response from every individual student as to whether they have really learned or understood what the teacher has just taught. So that power of constant feedback to the teacher about what the students have actually learned or understood from the teacher's activity. And so that is incredibly powerful and increasing the frequency. I've heard one story of a year nine science class where the check for understanding happened at minute 40 and it became evident that the students had been, had been uh, misunderstood the teacher at minute five. Well, now our teaching approach really gives the teacher much more frequent feedback on whether the students have in fact understood what's been taught. And that is profound because if I just think the cognitive opportunity for students is very high. And then also the feedback is very high quality to teachers about the impact of what they've just taught, whether the students have in fact learned it. So that's a very brief summation at a high level of a few of the points that have profoundly changed. But the use of those three ideas in our lessons is dramatically changing the cognitive experience of students and the effectiveness of our teaching. Yeah, and I like how you've broken down that explicit teaching that's happening there and how it's not just having that teacher lecturing out the front, but there's a lot of that, that checking for understanding, like you said, it's just so important and that is part of explicit instruction and it is getting the students involved in thinking, 
Um, and what about, so when, you, when you're looking at the precise curriculum approach, how are you supporting schools and teachers in, in having consistency in what they're actually teaching? Yeah, we're still on a journey in that regard, admittedly. So in, in early literacy, a significant number of our K-2 teachers are using a program called Initialit through Multilit from Macquarie University. We've got other early literacy programs that we are using, but that, that gives a very well-resourced total package of support to teachers and ultimately students. We are doing a variety of things though. So a number of schools are, I guess, piloting or well advanced in the use of what are called direct instruction programs. So spelling mastery is a very, very popular one that a number of schools, including St. Bernard's in Beethoven, who I know you'll be hearing from later, they've used it very successfully and seen great results for the students, often multiple year levels of improvement in academic attainment. So some direct instruction programs, spelling mastery, reading mastery, connecting maths concepts. These are scripted programs, highly structured, very targeted to what I think that the variation in the students' understanding that matters, that's their prior knowledge. So it is very, very responsive to the students' prior knowledge. Then we've also got, in addition to some of the early literacy programs, some of the direct instruction programs. We're also at a system level park partnering with a, a national organization called OCA. And we are currently rolling out, um, numeracy or mathematics lessons, uh, sufficient for teachers in primary school K to six to use that every lesson in their term. And we've done it for term one. We're just about to release term two and we're planning to get term three and term four done so that the idea being that we could cover the mathematics curriculum K to six with the teachers only having to think about how they would teach the material rather than what to teach. And that, that obviously, hopefully is a, a great boon to reducing their workload. Yeah. Look, I, I spoke to Reg Smith a few episodes ago now on, on the podcast and uh, yeah, we kind of went through the process of, of how he started up Oka and, you know, the resources that they're producing and also Jordan from Shaping Minds on it as well. So, you know, I, I'm really, uh, as a teacher, I'm really grateful for all of those resources that are coming out. And, and I think, like you said, it can really alleviate a lot of that pressure on teachers in terms of their workload. Um, and it's high quality stuff as well. You know, it's as good as, as you can produce. And I think like. One of the things that I've thought about for teachers is that we have so many different things to think about, you know, in front of a classroom, you've got to be thinking about what you're teaching, how the students are reacting, all of the, the different kind of needs that they might have. You're also thinking about what's coming up next, what some of the misconceptions might be. And, and then on top of that, you also need to be a lesson designer and a curriculum designer. And so there's just so many different roles that a teacher needs to be, you know, playing that if we can take some of those roles off them, at least at the start, you know, where we're providing that base so that then they can work off, they can see what like a good one looks like and then develop off that. You know, I think um, everyone would agree that, you know, programs like the direct instruction ones and, and even these things coming from uh, OCA, that doesn't mean that that's how we keep it forever. That's just a really good starting point that you can use to develop yourself as a teacher. 
yeah, so I think it's a, a great approach to take. And in terms of actually having that consistency, it would probably help a lot when you're looking across different schools, if you could say, well, here's a program to follow, but then I guess your PL model will also kind of work in line with that as well. You know, do you want to just talk a bit more about some of the, the features of your professional learning model? Yeah, I, I just start with one point that your comment then has prompted me to think about. We believe across our 56 schools, um, anecdotally and through the collaboration we're seeing, we, we think that collaboration, conversation, professional dialogue between teachers and schools is higher than it's ever been. Yeah. In, in the past, we've tried many things with the belief that yeah, teachers reflecting on their practice together is really valuable. I think because we've got a system commitment uh, in the way we do to the science of learning, science of reading, not identical programs, but very similar programs with the same conceptual and principled basis. We're now, we've now got very, very strong and fertile ground for teachers to reflect together on how they're going to collaborate, even sharing curricular materials, which not so long ago was felt to be impossible because there wasn't a clarity or alignment or coherence, even between two schools who might be in adjoining suburbs or adjoining towns. So we are really better placed for there to be consistency and for there to be a professional benefit to that. So we, we aren't putting anyone in handcuffs. We aren't saying you must follow this script, but there's the script is a great way to start off with a high quality lesson. And I, I did mention we're using spelling mastery. There's great results being seen. There was a story though, that occurred during term one this year, where one of our coaches was working with one of our schools and spelling mastery can really be spelling misery if it's done in a, in a poor way. The story, even stories like teachers thinking that every student had to answer a question correctly before they moved on. So you could have a, a teacher literally there for 20 minutes trying to get every student to answer a question correctly and never moving on. It sounds like yeah. misery to me, but really the, the rule of thumb is no, no, you move on when you've got 80%. And so releasing teachers to exercise their professional judgment so that they can move on. And really we had uh, almost conversion stories of teachers realizing they'd been suggest subjecting themselves to spelling misery because they weren't, they hadn't seen a really effective demonstration of practice, how good work. They became converts overnight when they had access to that demonstration. And so that probably leads in. So yeah, it is really important where we put a huge amount of effort into sharing theory. So we've done online video units that have been designed to be watched as part of a staff meeting over about half an hour, 40 minutes in context with colleagues. And then we've had scripts for school leaders, principals or leadership team members to lead a conversation to unpack the implications of that knowledge, whether it's the science of reading, the science of learning, explicit instruction. We've got eight to 10 online units that are available for our staff across the system. So that's trying to address theory, giving everyone access to the same understanding, the same knowledge. We're promoting a lot of books. 
I, I personally think that professional learning for teachers has been revolutionized in the last uh, five or so years by the availability, the ubiquity of podcasts like yours, teachers and academics reflecting so deeply on what makes good teaching and learning. So I think it's been really unleashed. Previously, you probably had to you know, have a, a borrowing card at a university to get anything like the exposure that you can now get through your smartphone and these podcasts. So really giving everyone access to that theory. The demonstration, you know, we've got great videos, but we've also got coaches going in, demonstrating to staff, this is what the practice can be. This is what it can look like. This is how it can help students learn. And then, yeah, giving and really a commitment too often in the past, professional learning has been an abstract concept remote from real learning in real classrooms. So we did do an intensive, I think it was in the term three holidays, that we invited students to come in. Uh, we had around 60 to 80 teachers, not only from across our system, but colleagues interstate. And the predominant part of the professional learning was standing in front of children teaching modeling it, demonstrating it, practicing for yourself. So it goes from the theory, the demonstration, the practice, and of course that coaching and feedback can be so powerful. And there's really good evidence that the coaching and feedback is as beneficial to the coach or the person, person providing the feedback for their reflection on their own practice or what's actually going on, how they, but also how they might improve. So really putting all those things together in a school situation, in front of students is just so powerful. And as I said before, it gives us the best prospect of actually achieving the hard thing of real change in pedagogical practice and classroom practice. Yeah, you know, I've, I've done a lot of thinking around uh, professional learning and, and, you know, provided a fair bit myself. And one of the, the things I've liked uh, about what you've thought about there is how you've got, you know, your scripts to unpack the theory, you know, for for leaders because it's one thing to have the videos but we've you know we've all been in professional learning sessions where someone you know turns on a video and they just press play and then everyone just sits there you know bored because you've got someone on the big screen that's not very engaging in how they're talking the whole reason why they're up there in the first place is because the school leaders don't necessarily have the knowledge to deliver that professional learning themselves and so the reflections that happen afterwards either don't happen at all or they're not very effective and so everyone kind of just leaves those meetings feeling almost like it was a waste of time um you know so i like how you thought about you know different ways to prevent that from happening uh, the other thing as well is and this is probably something i'd like you to respond to is uh with the online learning that that happens how do you kind of ensure that teachers are properly engaging with that because that's another thing that i've seen can kind of fall down downwards when it's not applied properly. Yeah. And I guess that is the challenge. That's what we've thought a lot about. I guess we're trying to change not individuals, but as a community, whether that's a community of say year two teachers within a school, the community yep. of the school, the community of the schools around you, the community of the system. So we are trying to change that human community from doing what we're currently doing, all well-intentioned, you know, but not as effective as we know we can be. And so we're trying to promote that. So really, yes, online learning is an effective or efficient way. It's an efficient way probably to deliver 
you know, the theory or the knowledge, at least exposure, exposure to it. I think that the, the issue that you're pointing to, so how do you really ensure engagement? Well, it's by, it's by creating that professional expectation in that relevant community that we're going to have a professional conversation about this. We yeah. have a conversation about how it, it applies or should inform our approach to teaching and learning. Yeah, so almost that accountability factor of, of knowing that, all right, you need to learn this because there's going to be a follow-up conversation. And not only that, but you're actually going to need to apply it into the classroom um, as well. So you need to be across that theory about why you're doing what you're doing. So, yeah, really interesting point there. And, and, and I, you know, I'd be interested to kind of talk to some teachers about, you know, how they've found that whole process as well. And, yeah, really looking forward to, to going into St. Bernard's and, uh, you yeah, seeing what's happening there. Now, just looking at, you know, making these changes across the whole system and, and that implementation process, what would you say are some of the key mechanisms that you've come across? Well, the, it sort of perhaps is obvious, but you really need to just communicate, 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 because until you've commu- like communicated, and I think this is analogous to teaching, actually, that as a system leader you can get a little bit bored by saying the same thing again and again. And I think the risk is that teachers might feel they'll get bored by saying the same thing again and again and again to a student, but actually in the repetition is the opportunity to consolidate the knowledge. We have a very diverse and large audience in terms of 3000 teachers, 56 schools, a thousand classrooms. So it's a very diverse and complex sort of ecosystem, if you like, but being able to communicate consistent messages, get, boil them down to the nub of it so that you're really clear what you want our teachers, staff, school leaders to take away is critical. And I guess that's been constant reflection and discernment is what really matters in this. So what is Catalyst actually about? What's going to make the biggest difference to to learning in a classroom, to student outcomes, to the life chances of students, and just constantly challenging ourselves at a system level to reflect on that and continue to refine what we're doing. So over time, it, it has evolved. We didn't have all of the answers to start with, and we, we're constantly asking ourselves what really matters here and how do we best support our teachers and staff to achieve that high quality learning. So initially, sometimes we're quite nervous or uncertain about how particular initiatives or professional learning might be received, whether it would be successful. And we've seen great results. And then of course you learn from that, you take that feedback on board and then you adapt your next steps accordingly. And so if you've got to give advice to other system leaders out there who are looking to kind of do a similar thing, whether it's across 56 schools or you know, a smaller amount of schools, what would you say to them? I think that there's at a very abstract level, um, there's probably three things. One is I do think systems need to have a relentless focus on how they help teachers in classrooms. You need to have a very precise belief that's shared, hopefully quite widely about what that should look like, how it should resolve, how it should be supported. You do need to focus as much on implementation as, uh, as, as much as you focus on implementation or new initiatives, 
you do need to carefully think about what you're going to stop or what you're going to remove, what you're going to de-implement in order to make space for the practice and energy. Because we can't hold on to everything and everything is not as equally valuable. So I think it's Dylan William who talks about opportunity cost being one of the most underrated and undervalued concepts in education. But if if we can displace a low value of activity that takes an hour with a high value activity that takes an hour, you know, we, we make a profound difference to student lives potentially. So that that concept of opportunity cost of de-implementing and implementing and really just that clarity of and consistency and coherence to make sure that the the precise understanding of what should be happening in the classroom, everything you're doing is at least causing no harm, but hopefully helping that. And that does take time at a system level to get alignment with all the activity and the potential distractions or the lethal mutations that can happen in the best intended program design. Yeah. And so what about, you know, so maybe not so much a system leader, but say a network of schools or a network of um, teachers who are looking to collaborate, but they don't have the support of the system. So they don't have those, the, the resources and the financial backing. What sorts of things should they be doing? My, my first provocation would probably be as little as possible themselves. So in in education, too often we've got a predisposition to write our own lesson plans, to write our own yep. scope and sequence. So all of these things, you want to beg, borrow, or steal, um, and in a sort of appropriate way, but avoid doing things yourself as far as possible because there's obviously workload, but it's also, you know, really about recognizing what the expertise is in a class, in a classroom, in a school. And it's really about knowing the students. That's the very specific uh, knowledge that nobody else has access to, knowing their prior knowledge and responding to that. So do as little yourself as possible. And I, I do think that, I, and I do, I'd say very much introducing all the staff to the same ideas, whether it's through you know, wonderful podcasts, there's some wonderful books, you only need to read chapters, there's some wonderful short papers. So that people are starting to get exposure that they might not have had to really things that they can talk about. Because I do believe shifting the uh, normal professional conversation to be about the things we're talking about is so critical. That there's a common expectation that when we're having professional conversations, this will take up a significant portion of those professional conversations because they should directly inform pedagogy, curriculum design, and assessment approaches in schools. And then really, I think there's amazingly generous schools and systems. We'd certainly, from our perspective, invite anybody who's interested in Catalyst to come and visit our schools, come and talk to our system leaders, take any of our resources that they might wish to use. We've been really fortunate to partner with Knowledge Society as one of our design partners. They've been critical in some of the problem solving They've been incredibly useful in sort of accompanying us on the journey and making sure we're focused. If there's possibility to get that sort of critical friend or collaborative partner, I'd certainly encourage a network of schools or a school who doesn't have system support to really think about that. But I think overwhelmingly people in education are so generous 
And there's obviously huge mutual benefits to that sort of collaboration. So I'm sure that you can find a partner who's a bit further ahead than you, hopefully, who's got some of the answers, who's got some of that hard-won experience, made the mistakes. So that that's that can be incredibly valuable, I think. Yeah, great advice for us. And, and I'm sure a lot of schools will be following it. Looking at your current state, and you know, I know it's still relatively early days, but what sorts of results are you starting to see from the, the Catalyst program? Look, it's, it's early days, but we have seen year three reading results at a system level across our 56 schools, uh, statistically significantly higher uh, in 2021 than 2019 or 2020, yeah, 2022 than 2019. So we have achieved that at an individual classroom level. Uh, we've got some schools who are regularly achieving one or two grade levels in achievement on standardized or objective tests. Some of the Australian Council for Educational Research, uh, progressive assessment tests for reading or mathematics. So there are objective tests where we're seeing amazing growth in student learning on reading and maths. As a result, we think of our coaching and the focused pedagogical practice, the updates to curriculum and the assessments that are being used, the check for understanding in particular. Uh, we've, so we've, and then we've got a number of schools who at a school level or a class level or a cohort level are seeing dramatic improvements. And St. Bernard's Haven or Bateman's Bay is definitely one of those schools where they've been committed for a number of years. They were one of our early adopters, one of our pilot schools, if you like. When you go to their school, I believe what you see is very, very high expectation vocabulary, evident in classrooms. You see students who are really enthusiastic about mathematics, which is not a common experience necessarily in Australian schools. And the reason they're enthusiastic about mathematics is because they're experiencing success because I believe of the high quality teaching, the structured learning that they're experiencing. So those are the beginning stories I've got. We're working with a evaluation partner, Deloitte Access Economics, because we do want to have a rigorous evaluation. We don't want to overclaim. We don't want to claim success that we haven't achieved. So we'll be producing more publicly available quantitative and qualitative reports so people yep. can see the progress we're making. Yeah, but I guess, you know, even if you look at the impact that you're having, not just on your 56 schools, but I've seen that other schools and other systems are starting to take notice as well. I noticed that Tasmania's recently jumped on board and, uh, you know, so what are, what are the kind of future plans? Oh, well, we, we want to be the education system that our students and teachers deserve. That means I think much higher achievement than we've seen in the past, not because we were doing, you know, it was bad, but we can be so much better. So really our aspiration is to see much greater consistency, classroom to classroom, school to school in student achievement. And we can do that through renewing and focusing on pedagogy curriculum assessment, getting even better system supports, because we want to make it as easy as possible to be a great teacher. We think we can do that. Uh, we think we can add to the experience of teachers. But for example, you know, principals have told me that parents are saying to them that a couple of things are going on for their students, their children, 
the vocabulary of their children is improving so so remarkably and also that their students are so excited about what they're learning at school and that's a new thing that those their students have experienced so i want to be seeing that consistently across our our schooling system across our thousand classrooms and i do believe from the progress i've made from everything i've heard from the experience of teachers that that's absolutely possible yeah awesome you know uh... I think when I first uh, heard about Catalyst, I was like, I can't believe this sort of thing's happening in Australia because for so long, it's felt like schools are just operating in, in silos. Uh, there's not a lot of genuine collaboration that's happening, um, especially from a system level where we've got, you know, evidence-informed practice really being pushed across what we should actually be doing in the classroom. So yeah, really impressive to see. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm really looking forward to, to actually sending it in action. Ross, just as we come to the end of our, our conversation, this is called the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. So just like to, to see what other bits of knowledge do you think teachers need to have? So whether that's something that's been transformational for your own development or misconceptions that you've seen teachers have, yeah, or just something that you think is really valuable. Uh, so I do think that E.D. Hirsch's Why Knowledge Matters is a great book that's been very influential for me and really lays out the case for why a knowledge-rich curriculum can make such a profound difference to students. So for us at the moment in Catalyst in our system, that's more of an aspiration than a reality. And then I, I do also think you can't go past uh, cognitive load theory, whether it's reading Sweller and Clark and Kirshner or Daniel Willingham, who's, you know, very good on this. So, you know, it's such powerful ideas. I think cognitive load theory, you know, many people have said it, but it's one of the most powerful ideas that teachers definitely need to understand. So they have an account of how students learn and how their teaching should respond. Uh, I think it's really important to understand those ideas, how brains work, how students learn, and then the power of a knowledge-rich curriculum with very high expectations. And together, those two things alone can be transformative. Yeah, awesome. Great advice there. And, and I, I think a lot of teachers you know, could do well if they read those two books from Dan William and um, E.D. Hirsch. I, I'm sure it would give them a really good head start on, on their own teaching practice. So, uh, look, Russ, thank you for your time today. It's been a, a fascinating conversation and, and I'm sure a lot of educators out there and school leaders will, will get a lot out of this. So thank you. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's been a really, real pleasure to be with you. I don't know about you, but what really stood out to me about Ross was his level of knowledge about effective teaching and learning strategies. I think one of the benefits of having a non-teacher come in as a system leader meant that he didn't have any baggage or misconceptions about how learning happens. He wasn't attached to any pedagogical approach. He just wanted to know what the most effective way of teaching and learning is. I also love the way that he approached his role. Ross came in and took his time, really getting a deep understanding of the current situation at the schools within the Archdiocese, and then acknowledging that there was no real reason why the system shouldn't be achieving better results. He then threw himself into finding out what was working at schools, both within and outside his system, and taking it upon himself to learn as much as possible about the science of learning. This gave him the confidence to ask the hard-hitting questions that were required to then make informed decisions moving forward. Throughout this episode, Ross also unpacked 
the three key concepts that underpin Catalyst. 1. The teacher is the most important learner. 2. A precise model of curriculum, pedagogy and assessment. And 3. A professional learning model. I love how they've thought about the professional learning model with the four essential components of theory, demonstration, practice and feedback. In the next episode, you will hear from education lead Patrick Ellis, who has been instrumental in looking at the nuances of the implementation process and ensuring that what they are doing is scalable and sustainable. Following that, I speak with the team at St. Bernard's and look at what is actually happening in their school. However, that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.